Howdy gamers, it's Leighton here from Leighton Night, the podcast that you're currently listening to in case you accidentally stumbled upon this, in which case I am sorry, but just wanted to let you know that there is a video version of this episode that is up on our Patreon for all tiers. So if you want to join us over there, depending on the tier, you can get all sorts of cool benefits. We do mini-sodes every week. We do some fun videos. Uh, you get access to our fan discord and overall it's a really lovely time and we would love to have you there. So without any further ado, here is the audio version of this episode. So if you want to do the video version, you can go to patreon.com slash late night or not it's really whatever floats your boat. Anyway, episode. In, I don't want to spoil the surprise. Asheville, North Carolina. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You just moved, didn't you? Well, yes. I'm still in the area, but I moved from a rental house to a an owned house. Oh my God. Congratulations. Yeah, That's you. the dream. Yeah. It is. Are you it is. from North Carolina or did you transplant? No. So I was living in Chicago for the last 10 years. And then I got married and my husband's family lives around here. And we also got really tired of the city during COVID. So we decided to escape to nature. Yeah. Asheville's the spot. I, I have yeah, not been yeah. there much, but I much prefer the mountainous area of North Carolina than I prefer the coastal area. I don't know the geography well. So Wilmington is far east, right? It's on the water, right? Yes. And then you are, Ashley, you're much farther west. Yeah. I'm basically like close to Tennessee. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, so there's like the mountain region and the coastal region, but in the middle there's the Piedmont region. That's all I remember from second grade uh, <laughs> geography. <laughs> What's in the Piedmont region? I've heard that word, but I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, it's where the <laughs> peds get monted. The monts get <laughs> Got peated. it. Yeah. Does Asheville, I mean, it's a pretty big town, right? It's not like a big city. Right. I think it's like 90,000. Oh, but it doesn't feel like you're in the middle of nowhere in a tiny town. 90,000. Right. Yeah. So my husband's family lives kind of like an hour outside of Asheville. It's the kind of place where people would be like, if you just moved to Asheville, you need to try the Trader Joe's. Like, oh. <laughs> like That's like their big thing. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's like, I've been there. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's not huge, but it has enough to live well, a bigger deal than a Trader Joe's in a North Carolina is what regional fast food chains do you have access to? Right. So Bojangles is the big one. So I recently talked to someone who has only visited North Carolina and she pronounced it Bojangos. And I got, I was like, am I doing it wrong? Is that what? not, is that like a local but thing? But it's spelled like Mr. Bojangles, Bojangles. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 I mean, Layden, is that something you know about? Bojangle? I've never heard it <laughs> said any Okay, yeah, no. <laughs> my husband, Jonathan, didn't know either. He was like, that's not real. Oh, my God. Okay, so have you been to a cookout? So I haven't been to a cookout yet. But every time I drive by one, it's like there are cars around the entire building. I have no point of reference for any of these. What is a Bojangles like? So Bojangles is like, it's fried chicken. It's like Popeye's, I guess. Yeah, it's very zesty fried chicken, and they have a really good, like, 
blueberry like breakfast biscuits and a little sweet potato pie, sort of like in McDonald's apple pie, but sweet potato. And if you ask, they will give you the bowberry biscuit glaze with the sweet potato pie pro tip. Oh, wow. (laughs) Secret menu. Nice. It's delicious. Uh, And then cookout is the one that we talked about a couple of episodes ago where you pay $5 and you just get a box with enough things to kill yourself with. Um, with the grease. (laughs) It's amazing. It's the greatest. Has Port City Java spread from the coast region? That is not something I'm familiar with, no. Bummer. It's very good. Folks from the coastal region of North Carolina, Port City Java Mocha Shake, am I right? Okay. Wait, is that just coastal North Carolina? It's definitely started as like a few small, like a, a local chain, and I think that it's kind of been growing and like, how could it not? Cause it rules and I miss it very dearly. Cool. I was going to ask, are you Southern Ashley originally? No, I'm from Northern California. I was born in Southern California, grew up in Northern California, like Redwoods, like where they filmed uh-huh. the Redwood stuff in star Wars. Yeah. And then I went to school in Texas. So I got my taste of the South there. Texas doesn't really think that they're the South, <laughs> but they're, it's close. <laughs> And then I spent a decade in Chicago, and now I'm in North Carolina. Oh, nice. Where in Texas were you? Denton, which is near Dallas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, University of North Texas. Cool. Every time I've gone there, I've had a great time, and so many cool people I know live there, but it also seems like it has such a weird set of issues associated with it that it's a real mixed bag. I I mean, everywhere is, but uh, Texas seems almost more so than, you know, when you have people in Austin- freezing to death because of right. a mismanaged power grid. It's like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> it's so weird that my first year in Texas, when I went to school, they had a Democratic female governor. Like, oh, can right. you, you can't even imagine that these days. And Richards, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And Dear God. That does seem impossible right now in Texas. Yeah. But it wasn't even that long ago, right? It was like 10 years ago. Right. Yeah. 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 2003 is when I went, so. Yeah, okay, so a bit longer. <laughs> a bit longer. <laughs> a bit longer ago. <laughs> well, you know, as we all know, 10 years ago was 1990. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. I was just listening to a thing. You both know who Chuck Klosterman is, the the author. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was on uh, Bullseye, and he was saying that he just had a book out or has a book out about the 90s, and he was saying that he feels like the 90s are the last time we'll actually have a proper decade demarcation. And then everything after that, he doesn't think is going to fit neatly into these 80s, 90s, you know, which is kind of a construct anyway, of course. But once the internet really took off in the late 90s, early 2000s, then everything gets so collapsed that it it almost doesn't make sense anymore to talk about, oh, this was a 2000s thing and this is a 2010s thing, which I thought was an interesting, I mean, you know, history will be the judge kind of thing, of course, but uh, I thought that was an interesting point. Right. I couldn't really tell if it was that we're just living it so it doesn't feel like it's demarcated. And then, you know, I was I was too young probably to remember going from the 80s to the 90s and whether that felt like it was a difference. But yeah, I could see how the Internet would really kind of put a wrench in things. Yeah, I feel like even during the 90s, I'm 46. I graduated college in 97. So I was like, you know, late teens, early 20s in the 90s. And I feel like I could have pointed at things that felt like very specific at the time that remained specific, like grunge, you know, that sort of thing where it's like, oh, yes, this is an aesthetic with a name. And, you know, it felt like the Gen X kind of takeover 
sort of thing was really happening. And I'm, I'm harder pressed to think of something like that from, you know, the 2000s, except like, not to be a bummer, but 9-11, you know? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you think 2000s and you think 9-11 and like low-rise <laughs> uh, jeans with cameras. Yeah, definitely right. fashions <laughs> are still changing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you think of when you think of 2000s like aesthetic? What's the thing in the 2000s? Nothing like uh, jumps out. Um, Y2K dreams. I Okay, so this is interesting to me as somebody <laughs> who was born the year that you graduated college, Brian. Right. That now like people who are younger than I am, which is already baby, the Y2K aesthetic. And they call it the Y2K aesthetic. You go on Depop Wait, or you go on eBay and you search Y2K aesthetic. Okay. And then you will I, find I, I shit that is. I wore as like an eight-year-old marked up for $200 of like, oh my God, this is going to look so cute on your TikTok. Like, no, these were fashion <laughs> crimes then. You can't make them cool now. Oh, man. Oh, so this is like... The Bratz era type. Yes. Thing, yeah. Right? Well, okay, yes. see, this is the sanitized version of the Y2K aesthetic where it's like, this is not authentic. You were cherry picking like the Y2K thought shit. Yeah. Let me see eBay. Let's go. That was when we had the really colorful IMAX. That was a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, those clear ones, clear with the colors. Mm-hmm. With all the weird Apple color names. Yeah. Yeah. Just skirts with jeans underneath. Why not? Fuck it. Right. Oh, yeah. I remember the first time I saw someone wearing that on the subway in New York, and I was like, what is going on? Is this like a thing? And it was definitely a thing. That's the only way you could possibly describe that. I think in terms of like artistic responses to 9-11, you know, you have Radiohead's Hail to the Thief, which I think is a great album. And then you also have a bunch Mm -hmm. of young women emotionally shocked and being like, you know what? Jeans, underskirt, good idea. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm looking at these images and I'm realizing that the day that someone decided that we should wear high rise pants with crop tops was like (laughs) game changer. Like, oh my God, everyone's life got better. Yeah. (laughs) But back then they hadn't figured that out yet and they still had the low rise jeans with the baby doll tees. What if you just saw everyone's hip bones? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what, what if? Serving Did hip. it go right from low rise to high rise? I mean, was there, is that like the defining line or was there an era in between? Oh, like, was it gradual? Yes, that's my question. <laughs> and then in 2057, <laughs> we're going to be up to the next <laughs> full body turtleneck. Uh, what would we say in physics? Is it a first order phase transition or a second order phase transition? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I think it went from like, Super low rise and then to the rise of skinny jeans, not necessarily like, you know, the waist location was kind of in flux. And now it's Mm -hmm. switched back to like high rise mom jeans, which I am so cool with because people complained about that shit forever, but they are so flattering and so comfortable. You feel held, you know? I haven't tried them. I see a lot of people wearing them and I might be at the age where I'm just like, oh, those kids wearing their mom jeans. I don't know if I can do it, but I think I just need to try. It's about finding ones that don't make you feel like you need to remove several of your ribs. Like that's a bad situation. (laughs) But when you get ones that are like right for your body and you don't have to worry about like bending over and you're, you know. Can you define mom jeans? What are mom jeans? I don't quite know what you mean by that. I mean, I'm aware of the jeans my mother wore, but... Google mom jeans. Okay. There was a whole SNL skit about it, wasn't there? Exactly. Back before they were, <laughs> they were stylish and now they are stylish. Oh, because of they're high-waisted. High-waisted, relaxed fit. They're high-waisted, but they're not... It's like high-waisted straight leg 
typically a little bit baggier. Yeah, and they're kind of gathered at the waist, it looks like. Yeah, so they're not like suffocating your legs and crotch if it's a good pair of them. Otherwise, like high-rise skinnies are like vacuum sealing the entire lower half of your body. Yes. Oh, man. I remember the baggy jeans thing very well, speaking of the 90s. Uh, I had this thing in college where I just, I loved relaxed fit jeans. They looked absolutely awful. As I've discussed on this show, I would wear them with Tevas with white socks, uh, which is not a flattering look. And I had this thing where I would try to see how many things I could fit down my pants at any one time. And we like <laughs> we would just start shoving the, I mean, this is, you know, I, I didn't date a lot in college, uh, but we, we would just start shoving things down my pants, books, mic stands, whatever we had available to us because the jeans were so baggy back then. Right. The Jinko days. Yes. Mm. I remember getting the Tevas and Sandals thing. Actually, this is something I wanted to talk to you about, Ashley. I remember being chastised by our big band conductor where he was like, you cannot wear those on stage. Like, you have to wear better <laughs> shoes. You wanted to wear them on stage. Well, I, I, I was, call it like, sure. We had some vague sort of uniform, you know, not even, but I guess that was when he learned that maybe he needs to specify footwear uh, as well, because right. it was like, you know, yeah, I wore a shirt and a tie, but the team is with socks. It was not the look he was going for. Amazing. It's just like you're collectively bringing the cool down by way too much. <laughs> yes, and it was already jazz band, so that's already a bunch of nerds. I mean, right, right there. It's the worst kind of nerd because it's nerds that think they're cool. Yes, that's right. Jazz is cool in certain contexts, but not a school big band. And if there are Tevas involved, it's just a no. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was always this way starting in probably, I would say always, but maybe starting in the 60s, where it just became like, for nerds, not even like jazz nerds, but just like, you know, you have these like Coltrane style intellectual, you know, shaman type deep thinker people. Then it became like extra nerd. Once it became like a college thing, then it became like straight up nerds constantly. Once it stopped being cool in jazz circles to entertain an audience, that's when it really kind of went downhill. I feel like there's definitely like, People will look down on you if you're trying to be entertaining. Like, no, you got to be, you got to be intellectual. (laughs) Let's introduce the show. Everybody, this is Late Night with Brian West. It's only been 17 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a reason I'm doing this. As with everything, I have a strategy. Mm. Over here, we have Leighton Gray. Oh, what's up? That was Brian Wecht. Mystery guest. Hi. Who are you? I'm Ashley Hamer. I'm a podcaster, a science communicator, writer, and a musician. I'm a saxophone player. And a saxophone player. Oh, my goodness. See, you see the plan now, Layton? The plan I was do to see come the, I, into the, I do see the, the plan. Player. So I, I am also a sax player, and that was my main instrument in uh, college. Little, yeah, because I know you do a bunch of stuff these days, but okay, so yes. you're playing sax in a big band. Cool. Yeah, so mainly alto, but for other things, I would play whatever they needed me to play. But in jazz band, it was mainly alto and soprano when, when they needed me. Was this in college or high school? This was both, but mainly college is where I like, we had like the jazz band in high school, which was not a real jazz band. You know, no one knew how to improvise. So you're just reading charts that don't have a lot of soloing in them. This is like the college level mainly that I'm talking about. Which horns did you play mainly? Tenor is my main one. In college, I played alto and even Barry for a couple semesters. But Mm -hmm. yeah, tenor is my main one. But you were a saxophone player and you were doing physics too, right? 
Yeah. So in college, I was a math music double. I went to Williams wow. College. I was like two classes shy of a math music physics triple, but decided not to kill myself. Already, even just a double major was insane. You know, I took all the math classes, but my thesis was in music. So I wrote a like a big suite for jazz band and, nice. you know, was like about to go to, I'd gotten into grad school for jazz composition, actually a composition, but really that's what I was going to focus on at Duke and then quit. I didn't quit. I didn't show up and then decided to do physics and like take a year off, teach high school and apply for grad school in physics wow. uh, instead. So I was like all about music and jazz specifically for a while I knew I wasn't a good enough player to be like a pro sax player. I mean, I saw what my sax teachers went through and it was just awful. Yeah. So you have a music degree too, right? I do. Yeah. 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 Jazz performance. It's tons and tons and tons of work and very, very little money. Yes. Like when I got a day job after my master's degree, I thought it's similar in like academia. Like people think that if you do anything other than the thing that is directly in your path, you're a failure. So I was like embarrassed that I got a day job. And then I realized how much more I liked music once I had like my right. basic needs met. Yes. <laughs> and it wasn't like just weighing on my soul to have music be the thing that, that actually sustains me. Like I had a thing that sustained me and then music could actually be something like a source of joy. Absolutely. So what was your path to the sax in the first place? Had you been playing since you were younger? Yeah, I, start, I started on clarinet in elementary school and then in junior high, I saw that they had a jazz band and that I couldn't play clarinet in it. So I, I started on saxophone and yeah. loved it. And then it was the kind of thing where I was like, I can't imagine doing anything else. So I guess I'll do this for college and did that. And so you were just music major or performance major. Did North Texas have like a, was it like conservatory style at all? Or was it like liberal arts with a music yeah. So it was a full degree. Like it was a full, you know, I had to take like Texas history and stuff because, <laughs> uh, because it was a Texas school. But yeah, you know, I had to do marching band and concert band oh, and, yeah. I did and it all. jazz. They have like nine straight jazz bands and then a bunch of other like jazz related ensembles. It's a huge Oh, that's a huge school, program. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. It's the first school to ever have a jazz degree. They they originally called it stage band. It was like in the 60s. That's amazing. Oh, wow. Whoa. Who are like the instructors there? My saxophone instructor was Jim Riggs until my master's. And then he retired. And it was a guy named Brad Lee mm -hmm. who was the music director for Harry Connick Jr. for a long time. Oh, cool. Damn. But yeah, like people who have come out of, of North Texas is like, the Eagles, <laughs> one of the oh, people, yeah. which is weird because our, our mascot is the Eagle and it, that makes it way less cool. I mean, uh -huh. yeah, <laughs> the Eagles are already kind of not cool, but. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. I mean, these days, Snarky Puppy, that was oh, like great. our, yeah. oh, our nice. college band. Like we would go to bars and watch them play. Really? Uh, yeah. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm such a fan. I love Snarky Puppy. I mean, you know, yeah. if you know them, you love them. They're just impossible. They're incredible. Definitely. And they are very much like the style of, there were several bands that were playing kind of that style of music when I was at North Texas. Mm -hmm. When I listen to them, I get, it's like nostalgia. Do you know Bob Reynolds at all? That name sounds really familiar. He's a, a tenor player who, who's done a bunch of stuff with Snarky Puppy and I've worked with on a oh. couple of projects out here. So I don't know if he was in that scene when you were there, or I don't know if he was like one of the originals or anything like that. The tenor player that I know, who I think is still playing with him, is Chris Bullock. Yeah, Bob is one of the others that, that shows up. Nice. Occasionally. 
Well, that's that's awesome. I mean, having a jazz degree. I know now, like Indiana probably has one or something like that. There are a good number around. I mean, Berkeley College of Music is a big one um, that does it. University of Southern California, USC is a big Mm -hmm. one, too. Yeah. So did you write as well as perform? Were you doing both? I wrote as much as I had to. I didn't really get that much into the composition thing. I wish I had more. And I mean, you know, it's easy to say that, like, I could do it right now if I wanted to, you know, try to get into it. But it was never something that really drove me. Yeah. For me, the writing was the exciting part. And then the performing was like the I'll do it as much as I I mean, I love playing. But as I said, I was clear I was not good enough and probably not going to be without a ridiculous amount of practice to sustain it as any kind of career. Sure, sure. I've heard people talk about jazz composition as it's like when you're soloing, when you're when you're improvising, you're still composing. But like jazz composition is sort of improvising in slow motion and yeah, yeah. it's on paper and you can go back to it, which I think is the thing that isn't appealing to me because I'm very self-critical. And to hear the thing that I did over and over and over, it would be like just anxiety producing. So I think I, I prefer for it to just like be out in the ether. That's something I had to get over which is like, well, this is on paper and someone else is going to play it and probably fuck it up also because that's not what I heard. But then you just have to realize that the thing in your head always is not the thing that shows up in people's ears, you know? So I had to learn pretty early to try to get over it. But yeah, I agree. It's hard. I am also very, very self-critical. And one of the things I had to learn was like to basically just turn that off. As it goes. So, you know, I think you and I have have similar kind of the science music kind of back and forth sort of thing going on. So was the day job you were talking about, was that science related? So it wasn't, not yet. So it was writing. I was a writer for Groupon and that was kind of where I learned to write like formally, like as a job. And it's weird because, you know, you think about Groupon and it's just like this cheap... (laughs) (laughs) coupon place. But it actually was really cool when I went. It was very important to the CEO that like the content was really good and they would put in jokes and stuff. So I learned to write humor. And there were MFAs who were editing my work. Really? Like basically everybody who was creative in Chicago was there. You know, we had improv actors and stuff like that. So that was cool. But during music school is actually when I got into science just as a side thing. It's funny because I feel like a lot of science majors have music on the side. I had science on the side. I would like read pop science books and listen to podcasts and stuff. And then so I I got really into it. And then with the writing, I started writing about science for a blog that was about the intersections of art and science. That was kind of where, you know, you and I are also in the kind of skeptics circles. And that was where I, I started getting into the skeptic thing. And then a science writing job opened up at a a startup called curiosity.com. And so Mm -hmm. I applied for that and got it. And that was when actual science communication became my job, which was great. I think it goes to show that science communication and science are just totally separate skills. You know what I mean? Yes. You can be a very skilled scientist and a completely terrible science communicator, which actually happens most of the time for scientists. Totally. And I love that, you know, you can pick up something like that because you have an interest in it and really get good at it with not a lot of science training in your background. Right. Yeah. That was like a big insecurity of mine for a long time that I was like, I don't have any formal training in science. I took like a medical writing certificate course. So that taught me how to read a study. And there was like statistics involved and stuff. So I learned a bit about that. But otherwise, it was all self-taught. So I was insecure about that for a while until I kind of really figured out that like 
the point of view that I bring is as an outsider. Like right. I'm teaching old me who didn't know anything about this stuff <laughs> and like figuring out ways to explain. Like that's always what I think about whenever I'm like writing about something that's right. technical. I'm like, okay, well, what would I have needed to know back before I knew this, which was probably a week ago because, you know, right. you learn new things <laughs> all the time. That's a really smart approach. Yeah, totally. Thanks. You know, if science is good at one thing, it's losing the forest for the trees. And right. as a, you know, a good science communicator, I feel like most of the job is to be able to take a step back when necessary and say, actually, this is how things really fit into the big picture. And maybe you guys aren't thinking about this in quite this way, but that outsider perspective is invaluable. And it's something scientists can be pretty bad at a lot of the time. Mm. Makes sense. Like you're focusing on such small things a lot of the time. So, yeah. Yeah. So what areas of science do you enjoy, I was going to say communicating about, but you know, I don't know, <laughs> what, what What are your particular passions uh, within that? Yeah, I'm very much a generalist. Like I was hosting a science podcast called Curiosity Daily for three or four years, and we would cover everything, just all areas of science. But my particular loves are like space, physics, like quantum physics even, which is, I feel like I'm usually out of my depth in that, but I try very hard to understand and explain it. And it's very motivating and fulfilling when I can. Yeah. Space and physics are my favorites. And there's always cool stuff going on in both of those. Like, yeah. like there's been so much fucking awesome space stuff. I mean, there always is, but I feel like it was a little bit of a lull maybe in the early 2000s. And then in the last 10 years, it just like keeps getting more and more stuff happens and is just amazing things constantly. Yeah. We imaged the first black hole. Yep. We launched this brand new telescope. New Mars rover. We went to Mars. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. The quantum thing is interesting, too. I remember you know, I started grad school in 98, and it was a big flurry of quantum computation stuff. And by the time I left grad school, maybe a couple years after, generally people were like, yeah, quantum computation is done. Like a lot of money thrown in, some cool results, and then people were doing interesting stuff, but it didn't have any of the big, sexy stuff that people were looking for. What specifically is quantum computation? Like, what specifically are you doing there? So you're using a quantum system to do computational things. Okay. Basically, the idea is that you can have, instead of just bits in one state, you can have them in a superposition of states. Okay. And right. then you can use that to drive basically what's kind of like a massively parallel computation. I mean, that sounds like like a quantum computer. I mean, that's what you're saying. Is that's it, what it's I'm quantum saying. quantum computation. Yeah. Yeah. It's quantum computation. But there's also all this, you know, there's like cryptography and other things that are there. I remember, I think it was in grad school when I think it was Ike Chang at uh, MIT, like factored 15 using a quantum computer. And everyone's like, holy shit, he just factored 15 and it's three times five take that. You know, it was like a <laughs> big result because he was using real qubit. Like he was using an actual system, you know, real yeah. qubits to, to do the computation. Okay. So I have to come in as the layman here who sure. knows nothing. Yeah, yeah. What's a superposition? Why is that quantum? Like, what the fuck did you just say? Okay. This yeah. Is, this no. is going to be like me trying to explain Civ 6 to you, <laughs> but you're describing real things. Yes. <laughs> and not video games. A superposition is, so a quantum system, systems in the real world can be in various states. Like the door can be opened or the door can be closed, right? 
So similarly, particles can be in various states. An electron can be in this orbital or that orbital or whatever. You know, it can have kind of different properties. It can be moving in different ways, et cetera. In quantum systems, the idea is that nothing is ever just in one of those possibilities at a time. It's in basically all of them with different weights. So a superposition is just the idea that a quantum object can be in a variety of different states of being, kind of all at the same time. And when it interacts with something, I mean, there's a whole complicated thing about like which one is it in? The answer is in is none of them really, or none or all of them. And when you make an observation, it kind of decides which one it's in. I'm being very glib here, but that's basically the idea. So a superposition is a combination of different states of being that a thing can be in. Does that pretty much track with your understanding of it, Ashley? Yeah. And then the fact that it can be in, and correct me if I'm wrong, the fact that it can be in multiple states means that you can do way more when you're computing something. That's right. Our computers that we're using right now use zero and one and that's it. And it's like either something zero or one. But this can be zero and one at the same time. So it just like completely multiplies your options for computing things. Yeah. So it, it kind of changes these things because every time something can be in a two-state system, you know, every time you have another bit, you get exponentially more by a power of two possibilities. And so the speed at which you can do calculations basically goes up exponentially because suddenly you have this huge number of things available to you that weren't available before. Got it. Okay. The famous example of this, the thought experiment is Schrodinger's cat. Cool. That was going to be my next question. Yes. So, you know, the cat's in a box, it's alive and dead at the same time, and then you open the box and you figure out which state it's in. So it's in a superposition of the state, alive and dead. This is okay. not a All real right. thing, but whatever. It's a thought experiment. What do you mean there wasn't a real cat in a box? <laughs> <laughs> I've been lied to by big cat and big box. Well, I, I don't put it above German scientists in the 20s to right. try to actually do this experiment, but yeah, that's all. Yeah, that would be some real Harry Harlow shit. Yeah. Well, and what was your other question? It was superposition and something else. Oh, I think I just asked what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> I think that was oh. it, yeah. You successfully explained what the fuck you just said, and I understand it slightly better. And you gave me a reference point that I was familiar with. So good science communication. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> I, w- I was going to say this about science communicators. Tell me if this tracks with your experience, Ashley. I feel like 10 years ago, I remember hearing someone say they were a science communicator and thinking, what the fuck is that? Like, is that a job? Like, I understand what you do, but when I moved to the UK for my faculty job, there were people there who described their profession as science communicators. And I had not really heard that in the States to the same extent. And now it's a very common thing. And I would call myself a science communicator to some extent. A lot of the people I know are science communicators. It's a straight up job or at least class of jobs. When I first started, science writer was the thing that I wanted to be. That was the thing I wanted. And I think just somewhere along the way, science communicator came into the frame. Yeah, I don't remember that existing or or not existing beforehand. I don't remember. Yeah. I remember specifically seeing someone in the UK say, my job is science communicator. And I was like, whoa, I've never heard anyone describe themselves that way before. You know, the UK is this amazing science communication scene. The US does too. But it just felt different over there. There are a few people who were like science stand-ups, you know, Helen Arney, Matt Parker, a bunch of right, Festival right. of the Spoken Nerd people. 
And there are like specifically people who were doing like science comedy. I'm sure there are people doing that here in the US. I just can't think of any specific names. And it didn't seem quite as prominent. Ashley and I were talking a little bit before. I haven't talked about this much on the show, but I started this storytelling show in New York called The Story Collider. Wait, you started that? Yeah, yeah, that's me. I me, didn't know that. Yeah, wow. me, me and Ben Lilly. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm like in awe. I love it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so yeah, we started that in 2010, basically capitalizing on the the moth was a popular thing. And Ben and I were both, he was an ex-particle physicist. Sorry, the what? Oh, the moth. Oh, Leighton, you don't know the moth? Give it to me. Well, I can give the charitable explanation or the less <laughs> charitable explanation. No, go off. Let me start. The snarky one is if you want to hear a bunch of self-satisfied people talking about how clever and interesting they are for 10 minutes at a time, that's the moth. Oh, listen to this podcast? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, the more charitable explanation is, which I honestly believe more, is that it's storytelling. It's true personal stories about people's lives, and they would have themes, and it was competitive storytelling. That was the real hook originally, is they would do these events. You'd put your name in a hat. There was a topic, you know, family or whatever, some pretty broad topic, and then they'd pull your name out of the hat, and people from the audience would rate the storytellers. It started, I feel like, in New York. Oh, wait, yeah. No, it started in New England. The moth did? Yeah. Oh, wait, wasn't it in the South somewhere? I mean, yeah, maybe. But anyway, like when I was in New York in the, you know, like late 2000s, early 2010s, like storytelling was like a hot deal. It was a thing. There were a million storytelling shows. I took a storytelling class. So this is how we started Story Collider. I took a storytelling class at UCB. And the first time you get to go around and say something interesting about yourself, introduce yourself to the class. And I said, thinking I was going to be the only person like this, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a theoretical particle physicist. And the storytelling teacher is like, oh, like that other guy? And I was like, <laughs> what? Who? Turns out it was this guy, Ben, who I didn't know personally, but whose name I had known from seeing papers. And then we got in touch and we were like, well, there's no science storytelling shows. Let's start one. So we so cool. started doing That's it. And now it's like, it's in like 15 cities or something like that. I mean, I would bring it around with me as I moved to different things for academics. So I did them in Ann Arbor when I was there and Boston and then London when I moved over there. Now they have like regular shows. I did a couple here in LA, but now they have regular shows like everywhere. Yeah, it's a great series. I didn't know that you'd started that because <laughs> you've talked about it before, but this is also news to me. Two years into this yeah. show. My original point was that the science communication scene was going strong, even in like, you know, in New York through the storytelling thing, like Story Collider and, and other venues. You know, I'd go to talks at the Hayden Planetarium, which I'm still not quite sure how to pronounce. I think it's Hayden, but it might be Hayden. Constant cool science stuff happening all the time. It must have been great in Chicago too, right? I mean, I imagine that was like a, a hotbed. Yeah, I definitely went to at least a couple story colliders and moths. I have a fun story about actually a, a moth show that I went to when I was still on dating apps. Oh, yeah. And it was a second date and a guy brought his girlfriend. I didn't know he had a girlfriend. Oh, just, no. She just showed up. <laughs> he was like, yeah, my friend actually really loves the moth and we were going to go. Is it cool if I bring her? I was like, yeah, totally fine. And then he shows up and they end up like putting their arms around each other and she knows his dad and stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. Is this like a 
is this a really complicated attempt at a threesome? Because this is not, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I will always associate the moth with that weird experience. That's really what a bold move fun. to yeah. pull such a genesis of a story move at a storytelling event. Like, yeah, oh, right, yeah. right. Well, and knowing the moth and that scene, there's a chance that that was on purpose for the story. Right. <laughs> Where? Right. Yeah. I don't want to bag on the moth too much. I, honestly, I was a huge fan of what they did and I just kind of fell off of it. Not because I disliked it, but just kind of moved on to other things. I just think anytime that mining your pain is required to be good at something, there's like, Something extra in your life that's going on. You know what I mean? I don't know. Like comedians, <laughs> actors, yes. yeah. like everything. Like, I love them. I enjoy the art, but. Yeah. Well, and also, especially with storytelling, like with this kind of thing, there is a strong emphasis on true. It has to be true. And right. what I was always told in my storytelling classes is emotionally true is good enough. You know, so you're not getting fact checked. You're not doing journalism, right. for example, right? And so you can elide details. You can change names. You can talk about how it felt, which no one can ever deny because that is how you felt at the time. And I think the problem you're talking about gets exacerbated when it's not like a stand up where you can literally just make shit up and it doesn't matter. Sure. You know, you're supposed to be talking about a thing that happened to you, which in principle could be checked by somebody. And that's a hard thing to do. And I'm sure at some point you're like, well, nothing dramatic has happened recently. Maybe I should like, you know, do a lot of drugs and kind of see what happens or whatever. Like, <laughs> right. You know, I, 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 I'm a hundred percent sure there were people doing stuff for the story, which is not unusual to the moth. It's just what people do. Like moths to flames. Well, my favorite moth story that I would recommend if people haven't listened to any moth stories is they did one with Steve Burns from Blue's Clues. Oh, yeah, that's a he, good he one. Really? He told one. So good. It's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, the Blue's Clues guy is popular with the ladies. Yes. But he's very pure about Blue's Clues and he will not allow people to you know, make it weird. Yeah. So it's great. Okay. I remember that one. That's a really, really good one. Honestly, they, they do great work and the stories are, I mean, it's very produced, which is what we did at story collider too. Like we would rehearse people and look at drafts and give notes and stuff like that. You know, the ones they put out on their podcast are typically like they have been prepared and rehearsed. Right. The product is really, really good. Um, and those shows are honestly really fun. I did a few of them in Detroit I told a couple stories at Detroit Moths. I was really, really into this scene for like years because I think there's a lot of fun stuff that comes out of it. Yeah. Ashley, you do make a good point of just like there are certain vocations or interests where like you do kind of have to mind the pain a little bit. There's like an interesting balance there, right? Of like how much of this is good for me? Is this a good way to deal with this? Like the thing that I get concerned about, especially online, is like, to what point do we actively and directly incentivize people further harming themselves or mm -hmm. just like, you are clearly dealing with this in a way that is visibly not good for you and you're not having a good time, but the nature of the internet just kind of continually rewards you with dopamine for doing it. Yeah. Troubling. Don't love it. Right. Yeah. And I didn't even think about the internet 
side of it. The internet has created even more avenues for this. I didn't think about this till right now, but I feel like, especially with the rise of long threads on Twitter or whatever, the utility of the moth or the really cool thing about it has now been subsumed by other things on social media. You can see people telling quote unquote true stories about themselves literally all the time for as many hours as you want a day. And you don't need to listen to a podcast for it. And as many hours as you don't want. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So maybe one of the reasons that the storytelling thing seems to have passed as a, as a fad, a fad is too dismissive, but as, as like a, a thing that was big, pretty much happened at the same time as the rise of social media. Did we just hit on something from the 2000s? Yeah, I think. Is this <laughs> yes, like I a guess we did. Decade? Yeah, totally. The 20, wow. you know what? That's a, we hit on something from the 2010s. Yes, we yeah, did. Yeah, from the 2010s. From the 2010s. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay, great. The storytelling scene in New York. Yeah, and just the inherent flattening that happens. Like, there's the level of like, oh, is this true? There's a much different vibe from watching somebody tell a story to reading a tweet thread from someone where they have an anime profile pic and you have no idea who they are. Like, yeah. I'm not saying that that is all inherently bad or like watching a TikTok or whatever, but I feel like just the general, like, gambling nature of social media in which like this is going to be semi-random but we are going to reward the worst behaviors and the worst actors in this zone anyway go be yourself right you know <laughs> when it actively favors and promotes division and everything that is dramatic as possible like i think that hurts the core of what is good and cool about telling stories yeah once again, episode 112, I'm mad about the internet. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask this before, and this is a total left turn, but I want to make sure we talk about it. I was curious, because I'm always curious with this with other musicians, like influences. Who are your favorites? Who are the people you were really into? Yeah. Dexter Gordon is really oh. the sound that I try to emulate. Yeah. Um, he best. has just like this deep, smoky. I'm more into the straight ahead style of jazz than the late Coltrane yes. kind of like very <laughs> esoteric and he's very lyrical, right? Like everything feels like this yes. smooth, beautiful line and not just notes and a chord. Right. Yeah. Lyrical and melodic is like, that's my jam. I love yeah. just creating melodies rather than kind of trying to, you know, find the most interesting like chord colors and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So he's my big influence. Living saxophonists, I really love Joshua Redman. Yeah. He did a masterclass when I was in college and it was oh, really? terrifying because nice. he's amazing. But yeah, his first album was a big thing for me in high school. Was that Mood Swing or? I think it was self-titled self maybe. Mm. I don't have to look this up now. But he's another one. He went to law school. Oh, he right. He has like a law degree. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But his dad is also a famous like, Yes. Yeah, Dewey, right? Dewey Redmond yeah. is yeah, his dad. So it's like, yeah, he kind of had had to do. Yeah, it was the, the self-titled one <laughs> is the one I was talking about uh, mm. from 93. I mean, that's where I first heard Christian McBride play on that too. Like all these kind of yeah. up-and-comers at the time who are now superstars. Yeah, those are my two big ones right now. So this is a new thing for me. It's unusual to be a female jazz saxophonist. Like that's just a thing. Yes. And so throughout college, I really dealt with that a lot. And I was like trying to, you know, I had people telling me like a compliment would be like, girls always know how to, they always play so lyrically or whatever. And, and it was always like, 
do girls play differently than guys? Or are you just putting that on me? Like, right. I was like in this kind of identity crisis. And yeah. as a result, I like never listened to female musicians, like female jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons is that they weren't very accessible. Like we didn't have Spotify when I was in college. Right. You just listened to who you knew and who you heard about. And I didn't hear about a lot of female musicians, maybe a handful. I feel like for us, it was like Mary Lou Williams and that's it. You know, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. I could say Marion McPartland is another oh, yeah. pianist. I used to listen to her show all the time. We actually had a whole semester where I played in a, there was an ensemble that played music written by women, which was really cool. Oh, but awesome. It was unusual. Yeah. Even the ones that I knew I would stay away from because I thought maybe the way to be a real musician would be to listen to the greats and all the greats are male. So just going to stay away from the women. And really this year I've started like seeking out female musicians who are doing it right now. And it's been really like motivating and kind of giving me like this new outlook on music. I like made myself a whole Spotify playlist of just all these female musicians that are doing it right now. Jazz specifically? Jazz specifically, yeah. Actually, mostly saxophonists. Oh, that's awesome. I'm doing the exact opposite of what I was doing before and trying to listen to specifically my instrument played by a woman. Yeah. It's great. I'm I'm having a great time. And are women more lyrical? I would guess the answer is no, no. they are. They they are all over the map, just like men are. What a shock. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That just feels like the saxophone version of like, you're not like other girls. Like (laughs) so much like that. Or really just trying to push you into the, you are like other girls. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I wonder if I have like, I feel like it's a manly sound. I, <laughs> that's a way you could describe it. And I feel like maybe I just do that because I, I'm not like other girls. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. It's something that I genuinely like as a sound. But yeah. there are just like so many layers of like you just internalize the misogyny that's inherent in, you know, like, hmm, wonder why the canon is all stuff made by men. Like I do the exact same thing where it's just so deeply ingrained of just like, oh yes, all of the really famous talented ones are men. There's like one woman in the thing that you're looking at, but we're never going to talk about her. Like it's so hard to like actively deprogram that stuff because it's not like culture or people are constantly being like, here are the amazing women that are amazing and are important to the canon. No, all of the essential stuff is white men. It's a bummer because it applies to everything. It does. And when you don't know a lot about the subject, it's hard to know whether they're canon because they're men or maybe these other women are just as important and you'll learn a lot by seeking them out or whether it really is true that these are the masters, which is why I think it's fun, you know, now that I'm like in my 30s to go back and be like, no, I'm going to listen to women specifically and get what I can out of that, too. Yeah, I feel like we all should do that more. And there are a lot of like movements by corporations and whatever else to be like, here are like 10 women you should check out. And I never know how much of that is genuinely like, these people are really cool and how much of it is like, ah, fuck, we got to fill out this list so we have a bunch of girl bosses. I think corporate feminism is another 20, well, I hope it's a 2010s thing and does not continue, but I see no (laughs) end in sight of the endless girl bossification of society. To be clear, I'm talking about like corporate capitalism, feminism, like, okay, we get it. You want women's rights. Here's um, Kit Kat loves women. Uh, we have we have gay Swiffers now, everybody. That I hate. <laughs> yeah, but I remember in, in school, like, 
I made an all-female like quartet, just like small group one semester. And I remember like a male mentor was like, well, don't do that. You shouldn't be choosing based on gender. You should be choosing based on musicianship. And so you're, by definition, you're going to be reducing the quality of the band by going with all women. And so then that extends to things like this, like top 10 lists of women. It's like, are they chosen because they're actually good at what they're doing? Or are they chosen because you needed a list? I just think there's still value to it, even if it's not all the best people. Like, yes, yeah, maybe the top sure. 10 lists, yeah. For me, there was value in having a room full of women with no men in it and feeling the dynamic completely shift. An experience I had never had before. I'd never played music where there wasn't a man in the room. And it was cool. And I think it was a really good thing to do. But yeah, that issue definitely comes up. I bet. Yeah. What I was going to say is that that argument that you're reducing the musician, that's such a... It's such a ridiculous argument because of all the other self-selection factors that have gone into getting anyone anywhere. It's like right. you could apply that to, oh, well, you're reducing it because of these are just the people in Texas. So come on. Those arguments just hold no water. I'm going to take a wild guess that if you had done a list of all men, they would have been like, yep, good job. You did it. You, yeah, there's right. no exactly. problem. Yeah, yeah, no problems here. Yeah, it doesn't apply to men. It just, yeah. Yeah. What a bummer. So did you do like classical music history too and all that other stuff? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely my least favorite classes, but yes. <laughs> yeah, we had a classical and romantic music professor who was a capital C character and just randomly hated people for no reason. <laughs> but they will occasionally mention a female composer. Yeah, it's like Clara Schumann and right. maybe that's it <laughs> until you get to the 20th yeah, century and then they go a little more. But in jazz, I can't think of anyone that we were taught about except Mary Lou Williams. Yeah. There was a cool book that I read in high school called Swing Shift that is all about the rise of all female bands during World War II. Oh, so sort cool. of like Rosie the River yeah, type yeah, yeah. stuff. That's Ooh. awesome. But it turns out that like that's not even really accurate. There were women doing it throughout history. Like throughout jazz history, there have always been female jazz musicians. Yeah. But yeah, we just don't talk about them. Yeah. Yeah. An adjacent thing that really bothers me as, you know, like a bisexual lady, any sort of history thing where it's like, here's this really cool uh, lady of history and her very close friend <laughs> who she was buried <laughs> with yes! and right. wrote some very fond yeah. letters to, but, you know, she was certainly straight and they were just good friends. Yeah. Okay, guys. Ridiculous. Yeah. All right. To, to quote the famous Tumblr post, Harold, they're lesbians. And then when you say maybe she was bisexual, people say like, well, don't put today's values on. It's just different. Like they don't. Yeah. You can't extrapolate from today. Yeah. Or they do the like, thing. kind of can. Yeah. <laughs> the very interesting thing where, where they'll cop like, okay, yes, she was in a relationship with a woman, but then later she married a man. So clearly straight. It's like, dog, what? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Just generally what the fuck at all of recorded history. I love how people talk about Isaac Newton. I would love to know what his deal was because he never married. I don't think he ever had a relationship. And so people are like, oh, he was gay. But like maybe he was ace. Like maybe he was asexual. But I don't know. It's fun to think about. That's the thing when there's like, no, this person was married to this person and then they died. Like, it does leave it open, but there is a very, like, heteronormative, um, oh, what's heteronormative, but, like, for allosexuals? I don't know. I don't know ace terminology. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think we should move on to segments. Yes. 
So our first segment, Ashley, is our pop culture recommendation segment. This is where you get to talk about a book, a movie, a video game, piece of art, pop culture, broadly speaking, really just culture. But talk about something that's interesting or something you've been appreciating recently. The name of the segment is What's Poppin'? And the theme song, which we'll add in post, so you're not going to hear it now, goes here. What's Poppin'? What's Poppin'? Okay, awesome. That was the What's Poppin' theme song. Leighton, what's poppin'? Well, thank you so much for throwing to me, Brian. It's like a, a beam of light that is coming through my apartment that it. I'm just, it's really, it's really bothering me. I am both on the dark side and the light side right now. And it's, it's whatever. Listeners, you can't see it. It's very noir. Thank you. I need to have like a cigarette. Um, yeah. And also right. I'm going to kill you later in the third right. act. <laughs> What's popping for me is Succession season three. Holy shit it's so good i like wanted to wait until the whole season is aired and i love seasons one and two so much i really think that like each season it could have ended at the season one finale or the season two finale and it would have been a perfect show because it's like just a gorgeous like beginning middle and end and it's so great but i'm only two episodes into season three and it already feels like oh they're here this is what the show is like it feels so like fully realized and lived in and fuck like I just watched episode two last night and the entire time was like can you imagine being this good at writing a tv show it's disgusting (laughs) so anyway um Jerry Roman forever let's go folks Brian please watch Succession I love that so a Succession's special to me because during the pandemic, when everybody was doing weird stuff to stay connected, one of my best friends and I, we were like, we should watch a TV show together. She's like, she lives in Portland and both of us had been interested in Succession. So we started watching Succession and it's like, it's taken since then for us to get through because, you know, we have lives and, and <laughs> things come yeah. up and stuff, yeah. but we'll chat. We'll text back and forth while we're watching each episode. And I think we're episode two of season three. So, oh, wow. We're in the same zone. Yeah. yeah. And it is as good. You agree. It's as good as everybody says. It's just fantastic. People love this show. It's great. There's a humor to it that you really need to pay attention to. That's like very dry, but it's very funny and yeah, very well made. I think that Glenn Howerton on the Always Sunny podcast was pointing out that Matthew McFadden, who plays Tom, is like doing things comedically that nobody else is doing right now. And I'm like, yeah. That's so true. (laughs) Some of his like line deliveries in the show are just like greatest of all time. The man is the king of a threatening sing song. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing about the show is like, I don't perceive any of them acting like I like even when it's really funny. That's just how that person is. Like they're just they're so weird. It's a treat. The score is amazing. Like they hit the jackpot Mm -hmm. on that theme song because every time it hits, I'm just so excited. And yeah, wow, what a show. What a show. It's a treat. Oh, have you seen the reason that I started watching the show is because there's that video that's like succession, but everyone wants some of Logan's M&Ms. Yes. That that is why I ended up watching the show. And it only gets funnier (laughs) when you go back and watch that TikTok. It's great. Ashley, what's popping? Gosh, I feel like this is so popular right now. So someone on your show has probably mentioned it already, but um, our flag means death. 
we actually that was last week uh someone mentioned oh man yeah see i'm sure no but it's fine no that's good because that's like a super recommendation there you go yeah it's great it's so good i can explain it again i guess but it's a pirate show where a rich guy from the upper crust decides to become a pirate but he's very afraid of violence and even rudeness and he (laughs) gets a crew together and they're all very strange, but it has this really modern spin where sexuality and gender and even like the way that people talk is all very right now. And it's also very like touching. It gets into like surprising emotional depth, even though it's a total comedy. I don't know any actors' names, but the upper crust pirate guy is Reese Darby. Yeah, Reese Darby from Flight of the Concords, which is amazing. He is so funny. And he also does that thing where he's very funny and he's very vulnerable. You always feel like he's on the verge of crying with everything he says, pretty much. And I I think it's so great. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like he feels like you've personally hurt him. Like every time, every time he talks. Yeah. And then there are some new actors that I've never seen before, but they're fantastic too. And so like there's a character who dresses up as a man to get on the ship. They use they, them pronouns for this character. And for like an old timey pirate ship, they're using they, them pronouns. It's interesting. Wow. Um, And then I found out that that actor is actually non-binary. So they're using non-binary actors to play non-binary characters, which is like wonderful. Fucking finally, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Awesome. Brian. Yes. What's popping? What's popping for me is it's a new animated show on Apple TV. Do you know Kate Beaton? Do you know the author, illustrator? She does Hark a Vagrant, uh, which is a really awesome and bizarre comic and has some just wonderful kids' books, The Princess and the Pony, King Baby. And also has made really incredibly touching comics about becoming a mother. Like, so good. Yeah, she's one of these like super geniuses who just, makes everything she touches better. But one of our favorite kids' books that we have read with our daughter for years now, The Princess and the Pony, just got turned into an animated show on Apple TV. It's called Pinecone and Pony. And it's just wonderful. It's it's like her books. It's cute. It's funny. It's compelling. It's just her art from the books. The characters look exactly like it is. It's vaguely medieval. I think it's supposed to be medieval. It's hard to say. We watched a couple episodes with our seven-year-old, and she loved it. We loved it. I'm so happy for Kate that this became like a successful, awesome TV show. And I think it's her first thing that got made into a show. So, yeah. Pinecone and Pony on Apple TV. And also, basically everything she's ever done because she rules. Yeah. Also, if you've been on the internet for any amount of time, you have seen panels of heart of a grain and you don't you either know or you don't know but it's at least 10 years old probably older i think it's yeah older than that that's like the only way that i've seen it is just random things on the internet i need yeah. to, it sounds like i need to really dive in and like read her stuff yeah because yeah, i think she has two different collections yeah there's hark of vagrant what's the other one it's like a historical one right step aside pops that's the other one i think her sister died of cancer not too long ago and just her comics about that and everything were really touching and special. Mm. So she's yeah, had to deal with some loss too recently and everything she does gets processed through this kind of illustrator's lens. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of hers and the show's great too. 
That's great. Beautiful. Being so completely disconnected from everything, it's great to hear just because I have not thought about Harkavagrin in a million years. And so to hear that out of nowhere, that's super fun. I can see young Layton being very into Harkavagrin. Yeah. 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 Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, (laughs) um, A middle schooler Layton, yes, very much so. Yes, right. All right. Final segment. It's a three-part gratitude exercise, one-part petty grousing. It's called Peaches and Lemons, and the theme song, which will go in in post, is right here. All right, so we're each going to start with a lemon, which is a thing that is a mild bummer, annoyance. Someone else go first. Okay, I'll, I will go first. My lemon this week is uh, my daughter, Audrey, who's seven, just got her first orthodontics. And poor kid is not having a good time right now. I was putting her to bed last night, and the last thing she said is, I hate my expander. And because she has oh. a palate expander. We're on like day two now and her face hurts and she can't eat everything she wants to eat. And she's also seven. So impulse control is maybe not at a historical high. So she's kind of going through it right now. And it it is absolutely worth it because her teeth are coming in kind of crooked and this will absolutely help her in the long run. But still, hate to see your kid go through pain. She will also not understand the concept of the long run. Oh, God. No, she doesn't understand the concept of this will help you in an hour. You know, like, (laughs) she's seven. So, yes, being like, you know, when you're 20, you're going to be glad you had this is not a compelling argument to a seven-year-old. No, it is not. Right. So, we have been taking her out for ice cream every day after school. (laughs) (laughs) Like, just to show her there's a little benefit from it. But, yeah. Anyway, that's my lemon. Awesome. My kid's bummed out right now. All right. My lemon, we just bought a house, which is great. That's not the lemon. But there are a lot of things that, you know, come with moving into a new place. Yes. And one of the things is, you know, we got a mail key. It's weird. It's like it's a house in a neighborhood, but there's like a communal mailbox with numbered boxes. Yeah. And so we took this mail key that we were given. Our The number on our house is 30. We put it in mailbox 30 and the key did not oh, work. No. And we tried again a couple days later. I don't know. Like I tried it and then my husband tried it and we were like, they gave us the wrong key or the key doesn't work. But then Jonathan had the brilliant kind of crazed idea to just put it in every single mailbox. Uh-huh. Just try <laughs> every works. single lock yeah. and see if it works. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And sure enough, 32. Oh. Our mailboxes, our, our house is 30. Our mailbox is 32. What? No idea why. Wow. Who yeah. has mailbox 30? I don't know how the mailman even knows, yeah. right? Like, wh- But it's definitely- It's addressed to 30. It's definitely yours. Like you are getting mail to you in this- Yes. Wow. Like we had mail, it was all addressed to 30 and there were things with my name on it. Yeah. I'm mad oh. about this. This is terrible. I know. Why, why I know. would you do that? It's so weird. That's troubling. And so what does 32 get? Who's their mailbox? There are so many problems with this. Sounds yes. like a mystery waiting to be solved. Right. This will be my first- conversation with my new neighbors be like what number is your mailbox? <laughs> yeah that'll, that'll get the ball rolling <laughs> is it a one-to-one map between the mailbox numbers and the house numbers like do the mailbox numbers go up as high as the house numbers i haven't checked that i should that should be my next step um 
Because I'm not sure how high the house numbers go. Yeah. But that'll be a good thing on my next walk around the neighborhood. Kind of like check it Just out. Just walk around with the clipboard. Investigate. And- yeah. Listen, they will <laughs> let you in anywhere if you have a clipboard. Just yeah. saying. <laughs> a clipboard or a ladder and walk <laughs> confidently. Mm-hmm. They're not going to question somebody who's in a hurry and has a ladder. Right. That's- Good advice. Clearly, I mean, you wouldn't just be carrying a ladder for no reason. There's a good reason there, so not going to question it. Yeah. Layden, lemon. My lemon is every year I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be on the ball. I'm not going to wait until the last minute to do my taxes. Well, Uh who's the fucking idiot this year? Again, (laughs) me. (laughs) That's my lemon. (laughs) Taxes are the dumbest fucking thing in this country. I don't understand why they're so stupid. Hey, we, the government, know what the numbers are, but we want to make sure that you have to do the work to figure out what the number is. And if you don't get the number correct, we're going to tell you anyways. What the fuck? For the years I lived in England, I could not believe. I was like, wait, I don't have to file anything. And they're like, no, they know the number. (laughs) And they took it out of your paycheck already. So you don't do anything. There was a tax day, a tax deadline, but no one cared because- Everything was already done. I mean, unless you had like a big stock portfolio or blah, blah, blah or something. But I was like, this is how it should be. Why isn't everything like it's? The reason it's not like that is because I am positive that. um, Lobby for tax. Yeah. Just like, hey, H&R Block, we'd love to not go out of business because we make so much money every year. Please make everybody do the bad paperwork and get it wrong anyway. So. Yeah. That's cool. Exactly. Yeah. It's so Last cool. year, I actually did my taxes too early. What? Which was like, I was like, I'm going to be on this. Because I had remembered from, this was a really stupid reason to do this, but I had remembered from The Simpsons <laughs> that there's that episode where it's a tax day episode yep. and it's like midnight on New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. And you see Ned Flanders get out of bed and do his taxes and put them in the envelope and throw two mints in there and, and put it in the mailbox. And that was like in my head, be like, I could be like Ned Flanders. I'm going to do my taxes in January. Is this the same episode where Homer footballs his taxes into the yes. door? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And he's like, Bart, you're three people. Like, Lisa, you own a, a boat. I don't know. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was great. I watched a lot of Simpsons as a kid. Hey, yeah. So I did it in January and then, you know, a couple of like W9s came or W2s or whatever, like came in afterward. And I was like, oh, I forgot about oh, these. So I had to like alter oh, my taxes and it was this whole headache. So you know what? Wait as long as you can. Yeah. <laughs> it's better well, than doing it too can, early. Can I tell you what my accountant told me? Wow, Brian, it's really interesting how you gave us all that great advice about how you should put all your money in offshore accounts. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> technically, technically, I said a hide, not put. Okay. All right. All right. That's yeah, fair. Great. All right. What were we doing? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> peaches. Peaches. Thank you. Each of us will say three things that are cool, nice, good, whatever. Wow. Someone? Yeah, I can go. Peach number one is after a two-week-long spring break, which of course is great, but once you have a kid, you realize vacations aren't vacations, and in fact, they are time where you have to be taking care of your kid all day, which is great, but also very stressful. Audrey's back in school, which I'm very happy about because now I can get back to actually working. We had a lovely spring break. I love spending time with my daughter. 
I also love it when she is in school. So that's peach number one. Peach number two is next weekend. Actually, the day this comes out, I will be doing a show in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania with some of the folks from the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And nice. yeah, they're and George Rob. And George Rob, yep. So he he lives there and he has this thing he does every year, has done a couple times, I think, called the No Show, K-N-O-W. And he's gonna be playing music and the skeptics guide, they're doing a podcast, which I think I'm gonna be on with them. And I created a game show with them and George, and we're gonna be running it that weekend. That's adorable. Oh, that's awesome. So it's going to be a fun weekend. Yeah. And those guys are all good friends now. And I just love them. They're such sweethearts. Do you know George, Ashley? Yeah. I've actually jammed with George. Which oh, wow. Really fun. He's an incredible musician. And I've said this before on the show, but his dad was my biology teacher and his mom was my PE teacher. Like we grew up in the oh. same part of Jersey and he went to the same school I did, although he's a couple years older. So we weren't there quite at the same time. But yeah, his dad was like my first proper high school science teacher and he's a great guy his parents are awesome it's it's awesome i love hanging out with them final peach is actually the mini that we did for this week which is now last week by the time people hear this Layton and i played civ 6 or really Layton played civ 6 and i watched her and didn't understand anything but it was a lot of fun and wow i wrote our little town that we started, our nation state is Dumptown. And I wrote the Dumptown National Anthem, which you can hear if you listen to the end of that mini-sode. So, it's very good, Brian. I almost made one of my peaches the anthem for Dumptown. For a stupid little song, I'm pretty proud of it, honestly. <laughs> I've listened to it a few times. You hit it immediately when you were riffing on it, too. Like, you ran with it. And I've had... Dumptown stuck in my head while I was playing Civ during breaks today. So mm -hmm. you did it. You did it. Aww. But it sounds like an anthem, right? It has those. It does. The right chords for it and everything. It's, you know, yeah. yeah. When you're riffing on it, there's like one note that you hit at the very end of it where it was like, ooh, ooh, damn. And I wanted to ask you what it was. I believe what you're talking about is the diminished seven that leads into the two minor seven. I love a diminished seven. Now, I know very little about music, but I enjoy it a lot. Specifically, it's the C-sharp diminished seven that goes into the D minor seven. Very good. Yeah. So Ashley knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> I want to take this piano out. And play, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, folks at home, if you want to watch us play Civ, I expected that sort of like our Sopranos watch-alongs, which I also tricked myself. I guess we convince ourselves that when we do things that we like doing for the Patreon, <laughs> that nobody's going to watch them. Yeah, if it's fun, no one will want to see it. That's <laughs> yeah, great ethos to take when making things, but people have responded to it really positively, so <laughs> we'll do more of that. Yes. And Brian, we'll get you to be a Civ Six, just absolute monster. Your tile yields are going to be fucking disgusting. I'm sure they will. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm sure they will. We'll see. All right. Uh, who else? Peaches. Three peaches. I can go. Sure. My first peach is that I've had this desktop that we're recording on for like five years now, and it is on its absolute last leg. And even though I spend all of my day sitting at it, and it is how I do my jobs, I just have been like, why would I upgrade? The, I don't. I can't justify it. Anyway, I got paid, and so now I'm getting some sort of like website builds it for you. But it is the most like pink 
girl gamer girl setup and I've never had like <laughs> a really tricked out desktop before. So I'm very excited That's awesome. to um, That's awesome. play cyberpunk and stare at Keanu's pores in 27K, whatever. Did you have a problem getting a graphics card for it? Are those still in short supply? Didn't say that they were on the website, so... Okay, great. We'll see how long it takes. Watch this turn into a lemon in two weeks where it's like, I still haven't got my fucking desktop. Yeah, the crypto guys got your graphics card so they can mine Ethereum. Uh, okay, great. So I'm going to try to stay positive. My second peach is that I don't know what possessed me, but I made some patty melts because I didn't realize you can just cook burgers in your oven. <laughs> What's the difference between a patty melt and a cheeseburger? A patty melt is like you have... Is it the bread? Yeah, it's more of a grilled cheese with a patty in it and some caramelized onions if you want than it is like I a see. burger. But yeah, you know, I don't have a grill and also all of my smoke detectors are super sensitive and also my kitchen has <laughs> terrible ventilation. So cooking any sort of uh-huh. meat that isn't in my oven is a pain. So I just like, I don't know, I figured it out and it was so, so good. I used really fancy like brioche that I cut like very thick. Yeah, just an absolute delight. And then my last one is that I went to the park yesterday and there were goslings. The goslings have officially hatched. I hate geese. I think that the ducks need to rise up and take down the tyranny of the geese in in this park. They're awful. They're terrible, and there are so many of them. And they ranged in size, so there were ones that were like freakishly big, and it's like, okay, so those are going to be serial killers. And then the runts, I don't know, do you call them runts if they're birds? The little little baby tiny ones are like, you're so cute in this moment. One day, one day soon, you will be my enemy. They're complete assholes, and there is nothing grosser than goose shit. It is the absolute worst thing. It's everywhere when there's a flock of geese. Yes. Fun science fact. Do you know why there's white in bird poop? Why? That's how they get their like uric acid out. They don't pee. Really? It's all combined into one poop. Oh my God. The white is what we get rid of in our pee. I had no idea. That's awesome. That's That's such a great fact. Wow. Now every time (laughs) I see the piles of bird excrement, I'm going to think of that. (laughs) Wow. Birds don't pee. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Not only are birds not real, they don't pee. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) Did birds not real, did that transition from a joke into an actual thing people believe? I think the whole point is that you can't really tell. Good. Okay, yeah. I got confused by this recently. Yeah, yeah. That's true Gen Z right there. Yes. Ashley, what are your peaches? Well, peach number one is I am eight and a half months pregnant and I am feeling a baby kick inside me like all the time. And it is the coolest thing. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) It sucks sometimes, but it's really just the weirdest, coolest, most magical experience to have like a human being inside of you. Yes. Like kicking with little feet. It's so weird, but it's great. Yeah. And I'm very freaked out and also very excited to. Yeah. Did you go like full science mode on pregnancy? Oh, I did. Yeah. I found out that like the kicking is actually sort of, it's like they're little robots calibrating. 
it's them calibrating their nervous systems. Huh. So, you know, people always say like, oh, she's kicking because she heard her dad's voice and stuff. I'm trying not to be like super <laughs> science nerd. Like, no, that's not true. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> there's no love in this. This is just a like meat robot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure some of that's true. But a lot of it is that they're actually still kind of working out how to make major muscle movements. Huh. And actually, when babies are born premature, they will see them do the same movements in like the NICU oh, weird. as huh. they see in like an ultrasound. There's like this, just this thing they have to go through, which is really cool. Yeah. Another weird thing. So there's this thing called Braxton Hicks contractions, mm -hmm. which are people call them like practice contractions right. that they kind of happen throughout your pregnancy, but more, more and more as you get further along. And in your first pregnancy, your uterus really has to like figure out how to be a uterus. Like it has to figure out how to be a muscle that will eventually squeeze out a baby. So I started by just feeling little spots on my belly that would get hard <laughs> and then they would relax. Huh. And then eventually those spots started to connect and it was like all the nerves were figuring out like how to coordinate their actions. It's wild. And it was like, I was witnessing a muscle learn to work just wild. That's amazing. It's such a cool, incredible, and still uh, you can learn all the facts. It's still unbelievable when it's actually happening. Yes. And then a human pops out and you're like, holy shit, there's another human. Yeah. I haven't got to that part yet. And I am uh, both excited and scared. It'll yeah. be, it'll be a big change. It is great. And a lot of work and it's everything. I mean, I'm not telling you stuff you don't already know, but it was. No, like, I, I, I love hearing it, especially for people who, who I, know. Yeah, I am great. definitely of the mindset that I cannot imagine my life without my kid now. Like I never for a single second regret having a child. It's the best. We also got a fucking awesome kid who is really fun and funny and great. And she's my favorite thing. Aww. But I like never for a moment have I felt this isn't worth it. I've often felt, oh my God, this is so much work. How am I going to keep doing this? But it's always worth it. It's right. always worth it. Peach number two. I just recorded an album with a friend that is coming out. Oh, that's, great. that's great. He's slowly releasing some of the tracks on YouTube. But like I alluded to early on in the episode, like I'm very self-critical and it's very hard for me to listen to myself on recordings, mm -hmm. but I actually feel pretty good about this one. And it's like, it was a very supportive environment and it was, you know, everybody I was playing with, I really enjoyed playing with and I didn't feel as the jazz musicians say vibed by anybody. <laughs> uh, and yeah. And so that's fun to see come out and see how people are reacting to it. Is it like the album is like an Ashley Hamer album or is it a group or what no so it's his album his name is jason de cristofaro he's an amazing like multi-instrumentalist he's a fantastic drummer but he also plays vibes and piano mm -hmm. really well so he does vibes and drums on this and oh nice yeah so it's his album and then there are two tenor players on it i'm one of them and then this fantastic tenor player from south carolina named peter dimery so we do some like duets and kind of well there's like a tenor battle it's a cool album that's awesome is that a thing that people listening to the show could go listen to or are any of the tracks available i'll give you guys a youtube link to at least there's only one track that's out right now that he has put on youtube but maybe by the time this comes out there'll be more but yeah we can link to it in the show notes yeah and then peach number three it's almost cherry season oh, hell yeah that's like is. my favorite time yes. 
of the year. I eat so many cherries during the summer and it's not always great. Sometimes it's very bad for my digestion, but I, I love, I love cherries so much and I eat way too many of them. What's your favorite kind of cherry? Of course. Oh, I mean the really, I don't know the names of them, but just the really deep, dark red ones. I think those are Bing. Are those Bing? Just if they look like you have pulled them out of someone's chest cavity right after why don't I go straight to murder with cherries? That's perfect. <laughs> I'm also a big cherry fan. Much like I look forward to mango season and cherry season. I like making cherries. You chop them up, brown sugar, balsamic vinegar in a pan, reduce it, and then spoon it on top of goat cheese, like really cold goat cheese. Mm. That sounds weird, oh. but it is like, or you can put it on top of ice cream is probably the more normal thing. But if you also like cheese, it's the greatest. I was up in Seattle with my daughter a couple of years ago in June, and all the farmers markets were bursting with these gigantic Rainier cherries. Like they look like apples, mini apples. Yeah, the colorful ones. I've never had cherries that good in my entire life. You get a little cup of them from Pike Place Market, and they were she. I mean, it was like fifty cent piece sized cherries, just real meaty. And oh, so I still think about those cherries. Cherries are just the olives of fruits, which I appreciate. <laughs> Deep thoughts. Thank you. I'm Jack Handy. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Ashley, thank you so much for being here. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. This, this was a great time. Well, especially so recently after a move and this late in your pregnancy and everything. Thank you especially for, for getting everything set up to be here. Yeah, you're growing a human in your body and you elected to spend yeah. two hours with us. So like, it was a treat. Thank you. For, thank you. <laughs> everything I can do that doesn't involve being a person just growing a human, like where I can actually <laughs> still be a person with interests and hobbies is great right now. Cool. <laughs> um, if people want to follow you on social media or check out your pods or where, where should they go to do that? Yeah. So I'm mostly on Twitter. I'm at Smashly Hamer. That's with one M. And also the same on Instagram. And I'm at ashleyhamer.online is my website. And yeah, mostly Twitter though. Great. That's good. And we'll put a link to the video for the new song when we post about it in the show notes too. Perfect. Awesome. Well, that's our show for today. We're like 112 episodes in and I'm so bad at introducing segments and also ending the show. Just interrupt. I think you're doing yourself a disservice and I think you're great at it. Well, thanks. I, you know, I try to play up the doing it poorly because I find that funny. And so now here we are and I feel awkward, but thanks for coming on this journey with us folks at home. Hope you're doing well. <laughs> Hope you're surviving this summer. If it's summer where you are, you know, it's hot. I'm projecting it. I'm hot. So I'm telling everyone, be hydrated. It'll be 90 degrees here in LA when this comes out. 100%. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're all burning in hell for the sins of a past life. Hug your friends safely. I don't know. Do something for yourself. I'm not going to say the cum thing this time. <coughs> all right. That's the end of the show. Bye. <laughs> Okay, bye. Late and Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>